How's everyone doing tonight? Well, before I get started, um, let me just start by, uh, by praying. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, as I come up here to preach your word, I am painfully aware that I am unworthy. I pray, O oh Father, that uh, we would be blessed and edified and encouraged and convicted, whatever the proper response is, by the reading and proclamation of your word tonight, and that I would decrease and that you would increase and be glorified. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So as I've been uh, preparing for this sermon over the past couple of weeks, I've been thinking about some of my favorite stories and the importance of a great ending to a great story. In particular, I've been thinking about Star Wars. Star Wars is easily one of my favorite franchises. Um, I love the story of the force, of the conflict between the light and the darkness of the Jedi and the Sith. And of the three trilogies that have now become the Star Wars movie franchise, my favorite is obviously the original. Episodes four, five, and six. And you all know how episode six ends. It ends with a great battle, not only between the rebels and the empire, kind of at the macro scale, but also a great battle, and perhaps even a greater battle, between two people, Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader, father and son. How does that battle end? Well, there's this tension that arises in episode five at the great reveal that Darth Vader is actually Luke's father. Because now what Luke has to deal with is the possibility that in order to defeat the empire, he has to kill his own father. How is that possible? How is it possible to stay good and commit patricide. Well, that's actually not how the story ends. Uh, Luke Skywalker does defeat Vader. When it comes to their saber dueling, Luke gets the better of him, cuts his arm off. And seeing the opportunity before him to murder his own defenseless father, he says, no. Throws away the lightsaber and says, I will not turn to the dark side. Palpatine obviously is not happy with this. You know how the story ends. Vader then is confronted with the very same choice. There's a son who will die in a couple of seconds if he does not rescue him. And then his father, Vader, does the very same thing. Chooses the light over the darkness and saves his own son. And so the story ends... With Vader's death, yes, but the death of a redeemed man. Vader has turned away from the dark side in those last moments of his own life. And once you watch episode six after watching episodes four and five, you can then look at the whole trilogy kind of with a new set of eyes. You're now watching all three movies, as I have dozens of times, knowing that the ending is coming. And in light of that, realizing that everything in this story is actually about a cosmic conflict. Not a conflict necessarily between father and son, not even a conflict between the rebels and the empire, but the conflict between good 
and evil. And there is something within human nature that wants good to win and then doesn't want another conflict. Stories are all about conflict, of course. So an ending, the ending is very important to a great story. You don't have a great story without a great ending, mainly because a great ending does two things. First, it reveals the message and the purpose of the entire story. Had Luke turned to the dark side in that final moment, killed his father, and become the new apprentice to Emperor Palpatine, the message of the story would have been very different. Actually, the opposite. Evil wins over good. Instead, in that key moment, Luke decides that good will win over evil. The second thing that a great ending does is it shows how the events throughout the story fit together and become coherent. Why do we get the big reveal that Vader is Luke's father? Because it sets up the very tension that's going to be at play in the final battle. Without the revelation that Vader is Luke's father, Luke isn't at war within himself. Will I become my father? Will I turn to the dark side? There's this great power in me. Will I use it for evil? Well, a great ending is really important in biblical narrative as well. Not only for the individual smaller narratives that are scattered throughout the entire Bible, but for the whole Bible and its grand narrative. So tonight we're going to be talking about the ending to the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah is a very, very small book. It is only four chapters. You could sit down and you could read it in about 10 to 15 minutes. But this tiny narrative is not only important in and of itself, but it tells us something more about the grand narrative of the whole of Scripture. So if you have your Bibles tonight, turn to 2 Kings chapter 14. We're actually not starting in Jonah. Because as I was thinking about the book of Jonah and the character of Jonah, who is a prophet, what is painfully obvious in Jonah itself, the book of Jonah, is that we get virtually nothing historically about the actual man himself. And what's interesting is that this minor prophet is mentioned in only one other place in the entirety of the Bible, and that is in 2 Kings 14. I'm going to be reading from verses 23 through 27. And forgive me, by the way, when it comes to the names. <laughs> In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria and reigned 41 years. The historical record lists this particular King Jeroboam as King Jeroboam II. So if I refer to him as Jeroboam II, you know who I'm referring to. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not part from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, different Jeroboam, which he made Israel sin. He restored the border of Israel from the entrance of Hamath as far as the sea of the Arabah, According to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was of Gath-hefer. For the Lord saw the affliction of Israel, which was very bitter, and there was neither bond nor free, nor was there any helper for Israel. 
The Lord did not say that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, but he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. So what 2 Kings 14 is really recording for us here is essentially a military victory. Jeroboam II uh, essentially conquers the enemies of the Israelites in the north of Israel and expands the borders of Israel all the way up to this place called, I'm sorry, I'm trying to find it in my notes, Gath Hefer. Scholars actually think that that location was about 44 miles north of Damascus. So this is well into modern-day Syria. And what we know from this military conquest is that this great expansion of Israel's borders north pretty much took Israel directly on the doorsteps of the biggest empire in the area, Assyria. And the capital of Assyria is Nineveh. Now, Assyria, if you know anything about this empire, it's one of the, one of the greatest empires of this time in the ancient Near East. They were pagans and they were brutal. They took slaves and captives and did not care what they did to them. And so you can imagine there's a lot of fear at this time, as well as a lot of optimism. We have it right here. The Lord is behind Israel. He wanted to deliver them, and Jeroboam II was the person he chose to do it. But don't let that lead you to believe that Jeroboam II was a good king. He was also a pagan worshiper. So this is the complex sort of geopolitical situation that Jonah finds himself in when we get to the book of Jonah and he is told, by the way, that empire to the north that is right on your doorstep and that you are not able to conquer, go preach that the capital is going to be destroyed. That brings us to the book of Jonah. Now you can turn there. So what happens in the book of Jonah? Well, as I said earlier, the book of Jonah has four chapters. And those four chapters pretty much split up the narrative into four sections. The first has to do with the call of the Lord on Jonah. Starting at verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it, went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord." I find this so interesting in verses 1 through 4. He's literally fleeing the presence of the Lord. Tarshish as a location is something that scholars haven't really been able to pin down. But what we can pretty much be sure of is it's not in Israel. Uh, one commentator I read suggested that Jonah is literally self-exiling himself. He's not only disobeying God... He is defecting. He is running in the opposite direction. Tarshish was to the south, and uh, Assyria is to the north. 
He is running in the opposite direction. Well, you know how it goes. He, gets, he finds a ship that will give him passage to Tarshish, and they hit a storm. And the sailors, who are all pagan worshipers, they're, they're, none of them are Israelites, they're, just, they're praying to whichever God they can come up with. Okay, you pray to that God, you pray to the God, uh, you pray to that God, and maybe one of them will stop this from happening. They cast lots, and a lot falls on Jonah. They realize Jonah is actually the one to bl- uh, the one to blame. So Jonah realizes, oh, I've been discovered. And he says, well, if this is going to end, if you're going to escape with your lives from the storm, which is battering the ship, you're going to have to throw me overboard. Which, at least Jonah had enough sense to go, well, I'm to blame. <laughs> then we read, in, starting in verse 14, Then they, the other pagan sailors, called on the Lord and said, We earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life, and do not put innocent blood on us. For you, O Lord, have done as you please. That is really interesting. These non-Israelite pagan sailors are now praying to the Lord. They realize, oh, he's he's the one in power over the storm. And your prophet just told us to throw, you, throw him overboard. I mean, that's probably going to kill him. We didn't commit this murder. <laughs> Don't hold us responsible. They throw him overboard. And verse 15 says that the sea stopped its raging. Verse 16, Then the men feared the Lord greatly, and they offered, the, offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. So the end of the first chapter shows us that Jonah, quite against his own will, brought a bunch of pagan sailors to repentance. And they made vows to make sacrifices to the Lord. So that's part one of Jonah. Let's go to part two. Jonah gets swallowed by a big fish, and he's still able to pray. And so Chapter 2 gives us his prayer. And I wish I really could go through it in detail. It is a beautiful, beautiful prayer that reflects on much of what's already been said in chapter 1. Jonah says, I fleed your presence. I tried getting as far away as I could. And yet now I'm being encompassed by death itself. He says, I'm in the depth of shale. I'm in this dark place. I'm far from you. And he repents. He says, I'm sorry. Verses 7 through 9. While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. He's speaking out of faith. He's saying, even though I am within the depth of Sheol itself, I am at the bottom of the ocean, inside a fish, if I pray to you, it's going to come right to your temple. You will hear it still. Then starting at verse 8, those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. That which I have vowed I will pay, salvation is from the Lord. It's a beautiful prayer, but there's a hint of irony in it. Notice the contrast from verse 8 to verse 9. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness, 
but I will sacrifice to you. He's distinguishing himself from the pagan worshiper, even though right above him, people are, are vowing to give sacrifices because of what they had just seen the Lord do. So you're seeing not only a little bit of Jonah's repentance and his devotion to the Lord, but also a little bit of his bias right there in chapter 2. And we haven't even gotten to chapter 4. Part 3, Nineveh's response. So the fish spits Jonah out, and he obeys God. He goes to Nineveh, and he preaches. Let's... uh, Let's go to verse 4. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. So this is a, a, a proclamation of destruction and judgment. The whole of the city, this large city that earlier in the chapter it says it took three days to walk through it from one end to the other. Jonah is preaching as the Lord told him to preach. 40 days, this place is going to be completely destroyed. It's kind of like a Sodom and Gomorrah type situation. How did the Ninevites respond? A bunch of pagan worshipers repent. They not only repent, they fast and their animals fast. Verses 7 through 8, we get even the king of Nineveh, when this news comes to him, here's his response. He, the king, issued a proclamation and it said, in Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water, but both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth and let men call on God earnestly that each, each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands, who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. Pay attention to that phrase, burning anger. We're going to come back to it. The king even recognizes God's judgment, his wrath, but he responds with faith. Who knows? Maybe God will be merciful. We're going to repent and see. And it's not only my responsibility, the responsibility of the king. It's a responsibility of each individual Ninevite. This brings us to chapter 4. So again, I want to remind us kind of where this started. The ending to a story can tell you a lot. It's very interesting that in chapter 1, when we read that Jonah flees, we're not actually told why he flees. And if you're an Israelite, particularly one who's remembering Assyria, the immediate kind of uh, assumption is that Jonah's fleeing because he's afraid. Right? It It would be as if God were to appear to me in a dream tonight as I'm sleeping and tell me, By the way, tomorrow you're going to go and preach in Iran that I'm going to destroy that country if they don't repent. Say, what? I'm afraid 
to go to a place like that. And even if I obey, I'm going to obey with some fear, with some consternation, right? Because not only is Iran an enemy of the United States, the country in which I live, but they don't exactly like Christians there. And in fact, they persecute them. So your, your natural inclination is to think, Jonah's really scared. And in a sense, you can understand it. In fact, I've heard presentations of the story of Jonah, I guess, in a version of the Bible that doesn't have chapter 4, <laughs> where I've heard Christians say, well, Jonah was afraid. Jonah's going to tell us he wasn't afraid. This, this is actually what happened. Verses 1 through 4 of chapter 4. But it, Nineveh's repentance, greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was, this, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. The Lord said, Do you have good reason to be angry? What we realize as we read the beginning verses of chapter 4 is that Jonah is actually, Jonah actually fled because he didn't want repentance to be offered to Nineveh. He knew that every promise of God's judgment came even implicitly with the opportunity for deliverance. And in fact, Jonah, as an Israelite, has seen this. He's read Judges. He knows that the Lord is compassionate. He actually alludes almost... Uh, overtly quotes sections out of Exodus 34, verses 6 through 7. Then the Lord passed by in front of Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in faithfulness and truth, who keeps faithfulness for thousands, who forgives wrongdoing, violation of his law, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, inflicting the punishment of fathers and the children and on the grandchildren to the third and the fourth generations. And that passage is often alluded to throughout the entire Old Testament. Typically, when Israel remembers their sin and they seek God for his mercy. So Jonah is well aware of how God works. He's well aware that God is compassionate. He is just, but he is also merciful. He's just selective about the recipient. He does not want Nineveh to receive God's mercy. Why is this? Well, Jonah chapter 4 doesn't really give us an answer to that in clear terms. It's a bit ambiguous. But I think, again, this is where we can kind of go back to the historical context that we got from 2 Kings. Assyria is not only an enemy, 
but an obvious threat. Assyria is a much larger nation. It is a much more powerful nation. And it is a nation that is growing, is very quickly expanding. Actually, we know from the end of 2 Kings where this ends. Israel itself, the northern kingdom, will be destroyed. And will be destroyed not because God forgot them, but because they themselves had turned to idols and turned away from the Lord. And what we read is during the, uh, during the actual lifetime of Jeroboam II, this is still going on within Israel. Israel is essentially an apostate nation. And yet God had shown compassion on them and given them the military victory they needed to secure peace in the northern end of the northern kingdom. Had made them a much stronger power uh, because of this. Jeroboam II is known in history as a very powerful king. So Israel themselves had been a recipient of God's mercy and his compassion. The problem is your political motivations and your political goals are greatly complicated if God has mercy on the other guy. If Israel is in the midst of this nationalistic further and they want to go further, it's really helpful if, by the way, Assyria is already a nation of sinners that God's going to destroy in the first place. So when Jonah gets that call from the Lord to go to the north and to preach destruction, he knows this could very well end up hurting Israel as a nation. Because then God won't destroy them if they repent. So in the last portion of Jonah chapter 4, we get what I'll call an object lesson. Starting at verse 5. Then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. There he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. So the Lord God appointed a plant, and it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. Notice the contrast. He was angry to the point of death. Now he's extremely happy. But God appointed a worm when dawn came the next day, and it attacked the plant, and it withered. When the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die, saying, Death is better to me than life. So we have in verses 5 through 8 kind of an object lesson. And again, it's not very clear what the Lord is doing here. Right? He, he appoints this little plant to grow up and to comfort Jonah, and then he appoints it to die, and then appoints another, uh, essentially like a heat wave, to cause Jonah so much discomfort that he goes from wanting to die to extremely happy to now he's back to wanting to die. We've kind of come full, full circle with Jonah. <laughs> he's experiencing an emotional roller coaster right now. And then in verses 9 through 11, 
we get to the actual message of the book. Verse 9, Then God said to Jonah, Do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? He Notice he repeats what he had just asked almost verbatim in verse 4. And Jonah said, I have good reason to be angry even to death. Then the Lord said, You had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right hand and their left hand, as well as many animals? So this is interesting. Because what we have here is a comparison. Jonah had felt compassion for the little plant. He was incensed. He was angry. He was outraged that the plant would die. Now, in reality, it's kind of, there's this, uh, Jonah, some, the book of Jonah sometimes kind of like playfully toils with the language here. Because Jonah, yes, had compassion on the plant, but only in a self-serving way. Right? It provided him comfort. This isn't a self-giving sort of compassion. And so I think we're supposed to kind of catch this implicit difference. Jonah has compassion on the plant in the sense that it was providing him comfort and now it isn't, so he's outraged that it died. But he wants and actively wishes death on 120,000 inhabitants. To such an extent, he's willing to flee from the very presence of God. God, uh, as opposed to Jonah's perspective, God has a perspective of love and self-giving compassion towards pagans who do not know him. Now, what we're not saying is, or what the story is not saying is that Assyria did not deserve punishment. They had sinned. They were a brutal, brutal nation. Nineveh is a brutal city and a city of idol worshipers. And God is still a jealous God. But the purpose is more or less to, to, to indicate from this phrase of they're not knowing their right hand from their left hand, that the Ninevites did not have a foundation. In fact, they did not have God's revelation of himself, the whole of his law. Israel had it. And Israel was supposed to be the beacon, right? The people that would invite others into a relationship with him. They were supposed to be so just in themselves because they were following the Lord, because they were living righteously before him, that other people would be attracted to Israel and wonder about their relationship with the Lord. Jonah had forgotten the place of Israel in the greater narrative. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. This is the Lord speaking to Abraham. Go from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and, I, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all of the families of the earth will be blessed, not just Israelite families. 
Genesis 22:18, and in your offspring, this again, God speaking to Abraham, and in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. There's something in Israel's establishment as a nation that involves a commission. Through Israel as a conduit, if you will, the whole of the earth will be blessed. And Jonah, in one sense, is kind of a stand-in for Israel, showing that the nation had failed. They were too wrapped up in their own political goals. I mean, just before Jeroboam II, Israel was at war with Judah. The northern kingdom at war with the southern kingdom, even though they were the same nation. Something's gone horribly wrong in Israel. So the ending of Jonah foreshadows the further development of redemption history by pointing, in one sense, to the deliverance of the Gentiles. This blessing of God's being in a relationship with his people, Israel, will burst out. It will go to the entire world. But in another sense, it also showed that Israel had failed to do this. And as we go through the rest of Israel's history, what we will see is not only the northern kingdom of Israel, but the southern kingdom of Judah would go into exile for this reason. It's a tragic ending to their story. The Lord was all too happy to see the Ninevites turn to him, but Jonah was not. Jonah, and in a sense, Israel by extension had different plans and acted as if the Lord served their political ambitions alone. And the Lord, through the story of Jonah, is saying, that's not how this works. I have my purposes. I used you for those purposes. And you can either come along for the ride or not. So how do we apply the ending to the book of Jonah? Going back again to the benefit of retrospective and narrative, once you know the end of a story, you can watch it or read it or whatever again and experience it with some kind of new eyes, right? Because you know where the story is leading before it gets to the end. And you can understand the events of the story in a coherent sort of network, in a more coherent way. Because now you have the ending and, it's, and the themes of the story that organize everything else. Similarly to that, to that now that we have Christ Jesus the hope of all, including Gentiles, including pretty much everyone in this room, we can now see with proper perspective how the story of Jonah points ultimately to Jesus Christ. He will end up being the means by which the grace of God is offered to everyone all across the world. Not just Assyria, not just Israel, not just the United States, not just Iran, not just North Korea or South Korea or China, to everyone all across the world. And similarly, what we find in the New Testament is that the Jews in Jesus' day resented him because of his influence among Gentiles and other sinners. Israel will continue to fail throughout the story because they take their relationship with the Lord 
as excluding anyone else. And that is not at any point what God's purpose was. Neither in Jonah, or in the New Testament, or now. So it's important for us not to be like Jonah, to joyfully go out to whatever our Nineveh is, and to hope to see what he did, sinners repenting. And when we see it, to respond with the joy that is appropriate to that, to the very same joy that the Lord has in seeing sinners repent and turn to him and away from their sin. The third point is that the promise of destruction, which is a key part of the gospel, the gospel that we are commissioned to preach includes the promise of destruction, always comes with an opportunity for salvation. Whether that opportunity is implicit in the case of what Jonah was commissioned to preach to Nineveh or explicit as we have it now in the gospel. And so in, a, in essence, we have to proclaim both. We've been entrusted as the church with both, both the promise of destruction and the opportunity for salvation in Jesus Christ. So let's go with joy and share that with other people and not be like Jonah who's angry when he sees, when he sees God's purpose being done and people turning to him for salvation. If um, anyone is listening or watching um, or is in the room today who really doesn't know what I'm talking about, has never experienced that salvation, the gospel in a very real way, and I, anyone in this room can tell you this from experience, the gospel in a very real way does not start very pleasantly. We are sinners. We're condemned because of our sin. And we have the promise of destruction that is coming. God is a just God. Exodus 34, which says that he's compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. All of that is true, but he also will not let the wicked go unpunished. And all of us count as sinners. But that comes with an opportunity for salvation in Jesus Christ alone. So if you don't know what that is or what that looks like, please speak to one of us. And we can share with you the hope of Christ Jesus. Thank you.